This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Well, guys, welcome to the Sunday edition of Daily Thunder. I, as my keynote comes up onto the screen, uh, we are, uh, though this is, uh, on, on Sundays I like to do a standalone, I, I'm still in the final touches of my Marvel of Manliness series, which, by the way, for those of you that haven't heard that title, that, that's a pretty cool title, isn't it? A series called The Marvel of Manliness. And some of you missed the entire series. So because of that, I wanted to at least give you the, at least one uh, session in it. And that's, that's going to be this one. I think this is going to be my last in the series. I had some cool titles for this one. At one point in time, it was called The Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and it turned into a more boring title called Endurance. But I think this is uh, effective and it does enunciate it. There is a, a quality to manliness and when I say manliness, I, I want us to recognize that manliness, put a capital M on that. We're talking about Christ-likeness, which is something that all of us actually learn to walk in because it's actually the man that moves inside of each of us, whether we be a man or a, a woman, to live and express his life. Now, he expresses it differently from a man and a woman in as far as roles and as far as disposition, as far as honor, but there is a quality that is the same. So if we were going to say, be strong and of good courage, it's not like just the men in here rise up and go, oh, that's for me. Every single one of us understands the, that quality and that attribute must be cultivated inside of each of us. The same is true with this one. When I, when I see the word endurance, I immediately think of the book uh, that is, I don't know if it was written by Ernest Shackleton. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's about Ernest Shackleton. I, I remember I read it when I was in, uh, Maui. Uh, I was in the hot sun for like uh, three weeks and I was laying in a hammock reading Endurance, which is a very funny contrast because it's, uh, it's about the explorations of Antarctica by Ernest Shackleton and his team. And it is such a desperate trying adventure. And the whole book is called Endurance and that's exactly what it is. It's trying men to the uttermost. The fact that every single one of them came back alive is just so shocking uh, but it's a great book if any of you want to get cold. Uh, that's that's a book you want to read. I, I tell you what, it was weird. I was cold in the hot sun in Maui. 
Uh, and that was like, I mean, we're talking 20 years ago. But uh, great, still, still stands out in my memory. So that's what that, uh, that title reminds me of. And so I remember when I read it, I was going through an exercise of going through all the different men I'd, I'd learned about in history and writing down the, the ones that I felt had qualities that I didn't have. And then I wrote them all out and then I picked like three or four and I blended them together like it was some kind of uh, ingredients list to say this is the man, this is the sort of man that I feel God wants to build me into but I'm not today. And one of the four men was Ernest Shackleton. And I don't, have a, I don't know if he was a Christian, right? So it wasn't his Christian quality that was standing out to me. It was this. It was his hardiness, his perseverance. I grew up in a very soft culture. And I would say overall, America leads to very soft men. And as a result, when times get difficult, they have a tendency to melt. C.T. Studd would call that a chocolate soldier. Uh, one that when the heat turns up in life, they just sort of fall to pieces. And I recognize that for me, that was precisely the way I was. I didn't like that, but I didn't recognize it until God started trying me with fire. And once I started to go through the fire, I recognized that I could not stand up under the heat. So I esteemed things. I had the right doctrine in my head, but there was a quality in my life of durability that was lacking. And so I would find myself giving way to anxiety almost immediately, turning to self-pity almost like it was, you know, the, the main food just sitting in my refrigerator. It's like I am hungry. There it is. And it was me. Why am I going through this? Why is this so difficult for me? And not recognizing that the entire infrastructure of a healthy Christian life must have a different diet source than self. It must feed off of the strength and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting because trials create a hunger, a need within a man. I'm using man in a general sense here. Within a man, and so we're supposed to turn to the refrigerator, in a sense, the, the supply cabinet, and we're not supposed to reach in and take out anxiety. That shouldn't even be in our thing. Our self-interest, that shouldn't even be in our refrigerator. Self-pity, that doesn't belong in there. But we should be going after grace. We should stock our pantry and our refrigerator full of grace, the truth of God's kingdom, the fact that he is sufficient for every situation. Therefore, we take pleasure in these situations. Why? Because we have a refrigerator stocked full of everything that we need for that situation. Why would you fear hunger if you knew that your pantry and your refrigerator were full of good food? You wouldn't fear hunger. And, and we don't fear trial and tribulation and difficulty because we have everything we need to go through it. And endurance is a quality of extended exercise of that exact principle. You see, many of us have proven that we can make it through an individual trial. But going through a trial that is either long or trial after trial after trial, we begin to be susceptible to a different voice. In other words, the first voice we can overcome, which is like, you're nothing. You can't respond to this. You don't have what you need. And then you rise up with truth. And you apply and says, my God is sufficient for this. He will turn what the enemy has meant for evil into good. And we respond to the individual circumstance heroically. But that's not necessarily endurance. Endurance is now being hit again. Or rising up with that. And the enemy moves in and says, see, your God did not come through for you. 
you see those and then having that extend for a long period of time creates a tension in the soul that most men and women cannot outlast. And I, here, maybe I should just say it this way. There isn't any man or woman that can outlast that without something supernatural coming in. The moment you lose hope, the moment you lose faith, is it's replaced in your soul with despair. And despair will crush you very quickly. Endurance demands a continuance of faith in the midst of that hot heat, that fire of trial. It's interesting because this is December 1st, and whenever I see the, the date of December 1st, I re- and I'm going to finish with it today, it reminds me of a December 1st, oh, 27 years ago. And so I'll finish with that today, but it's, it's just a unique thing for my life. And so this is a special day in my history, guys. Uh, so we'll, we'll finish with that. My clicker is, oh, there we go. <clears throat> Genesis 32. So what I'd like to do is draw out how the Hebrew nation would have understood this idea of perseverance, endurance. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now notice that man is capitalized, which fits our message uh, well. And we know that that's God that he was wrestling with, even though there seems to be some confusion when you read the story. It sounds like an angel or just some extra character. But this place is called Peniel, the face of God. So it is named after this. In other words, and there's another reference later in, in the Old Testament, which is making it very clear that this is God Almighty that Jacob is actually grabbing a hold of. Very specifically, you'd probably be the most accurate in your mind if you understood it to be Christ Jesus and our relationship. This is a nation. Jacob is symbolic of Israel in this, and he is grabbing a hold of God. And this is a symbol in the Old Testament to a people of what they are to do, what the essence of faith is in the most difficult times. Now, it's also important to recognize that in this story, this nation, (laughs) Jacob or Israel, is weak. It's at its weakest point. And it has tried in its own strength to gain something. To be the firstborn, it tried to grab the heel. To gain the birthright, it it, it conned and and deceived and (coughs) was able to get, you know, for a bowl of red stew, get this birthright, but still not satisfied. And with this whole uh, ridiculous uh, drama routine, dresses up in goat skin and comes in and acts like he's Esau to try and get the blessing from his father. And after all of this, all he has is still misery. He has Esau's threat that he will kill him the next time he sees him. He has lived with uh, his father-in-law, married two women, not after the easiest processes that he's gone through. He has a whole bunch of infighting in his family. His father-in-law is trying to hunt him down. He's just in a bad situation, okay? There's nothing good in Jacob's life, even though he esteems the heavenly realms. He, he desires the blessing. He desires what God has. He's just trying to get it in the wrong way. And he's failing at this time. He's flagging uh, in the endurance category. And so he recognizes that, J- that Esau is waiting for him with 400 armed men to destroy him the next day. And so... And, Everything is just going south for his life. He feels called to the land of promise, just like you do, just like I do, but there is impediment in the way, and so he's starting to break down. In fact, break into two parts is exactly what happens. He takes one part of his party, sends it one direction, the other part the other way, just in case one is taken out, the other could survive. This is the context for this wrestling match. 
for those of us that are at that weakened state, and I, it's, it's just interesting how in a room like this, we all can very quickly identify the more you step forward for Christ, the more you stand up and stick your head out of the foxhole, the more you begin to recognize this is a very real battle. And so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And he, the man, said, let me go for the day breaks. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the historic understanding of this is the dark of the night or uh, the, when, when we reach that blackness, when it all seems lost and you feel like letting go, you feel like giving up, that there is one solution in that time and that's to grab a hold of God and to not let go. The very thing that even you even sense that God himself is saying, hey, aren't you going to let me go? This is what mortal men do. They let go of God in the time of crisis. And yet there's something supernatural that is taking place in this. And Jacob does the opposite of what mortal men do. He says, no, I will not let go until I get what you have. And so in a time of what we're going to call endurance, what we see is the pattern for it right here. There is a need when all seems to be going south when the most difficult season of your life has come upon you to freshly rally the soul like a man and grab a hold of God and not let go. And even if you even sense that God's trying to shrug you off, like, hey, aren't you going to let me go? You know that God purposely seems to do this? He goes silent on us. It's like, God, 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 are you there? He's there. You know he's there. Why does he do the silent? He falls asleep on them. Now, I still, you know, we, we do question if he had the one eye that was opening when he was in the boat, you know, and he's like checking. However, he seems to, and he dies on him in one situation. It's like, hey, we need you right now. He's dead. He breathes his last. Oh, you see, there are moments that appear that God has abandoned you. Has he? When he shrugs you and says, hey, let go of me. You see, there's a, it's called the test of faith. And for each one of us, I don't care what your circumstance is, if it's extreme or it's, it's not as extreme as some others in here, to freshly reach out and grab. And this is how we cultivate the quality of perseverance or endurance. As it says of Eleazar, when his hand was growing tired in the battle, it says he clave his hand to the sword and the Lord wrought a great victory. This is three men. In that story, there's three men against an entire Philistine army. You want to know how tired your hand would get? I mean, I don't know what it's like to hit someone with a sword, okay? Hit an actual man's body with a sword. I don't really want to study it and figure out what it would be like. I've never done it. But I have a hunch that it would actually be extremely jarring to your physical body to engage a sharp object with someone's body, okay? And that it would actually create a reverberation. Just like when you shoot a gun, it has a kickback. I have a hunch that this would wear down your wrist. I mean, I shoveled. What day was that last week? Was it Tuesday? I shoveled with Hudson. We were out there. I mean, I, I started early in the morning. It was like done at like 11, 1130. And this was half my driveway. That snow was heavy, heavy, heavy. And I'm like halfway done. My arm still right now, because of my shoveling arm, whichever one that was, it was carrying the weight is still sore in this very odd way, right? I can only imagine what it would be like to carry a sword and to be swinging against an entire army, by the way, without any sense that the army is depleting. <laughs> it's like, it's just is so many and they're always around you and there you are swinging. You don't have any chance for a break. 
And there's that moment in there where you just want to give up. You just want to say, God, I can't keep doing this. So what should you do, guys? Should you drop your sword? You have a choice that you need to make. And it says the Eliezer clave his hand into the sword, which is a decision of the will that actually is almost like cementing your hand unto the sword, which would probably need to be pried off afterwards. It's the equivalent of like wrapping it so that it literally you cannot let go. And that's precisely what we do. When you reach these moments, you cleave your hand unto that sword. Cleave your hand unto your God. So here's the other moment in history that sort of enunciates the same perseverance. And we're going to see in the book of James this exact scene referenced with great admiration. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now that doesn't really tell the story. Well, but it's the good summation of it. You see, Elijah knows that God wants to do something in Israel. He wants to bring rain back to Israel. There are certain things that you know that you know that you know that God wants to do in this generation. There's things that you know that you know that God wants to do in your life. However, it seems that there's an impediment. There's a friction against these simple things. Well, simple. These, these there are supernatural, but they shouldn't be that hard, right? There are things in your life that you've been praying for. At what point do you finally give up? At what point do you finally decide maybe God doesn't want to do that? Maybe God doesn't care about the church in America. Maybe he wants it to go down the toilet. There's things that I have stood for for years, we could say decades, that I have still not seen a response in the natural realm. And I tell you what, it is a very real propensity to set down the sword, to let go. Because through the dark of the night, it's hard to wait for the daybreak. If you've ever been camping and you're uncomfortable, like there's like that rock beneath your back and you're like trying to sleep at night and you're rolling over. Have you ever noticed that night can like quadruple in length when you're camping? It's just like takes forever. The last time we camped, Leslie wanted to stay in our Sprinter van where everyone else was in the, the tents and that sounded really nice, right? So I, we're in the front seat and the seats don't go back very far and so I'm trying to get, I was so miserable the whole night. It was just a miserable night. I think she was too. And then we hear rumor that when, if you go up to go to the bathroom, there's a bear that's loose. So now you're like, you don't want to go to the bathroom until it's daylight because you don't want to run into the bear, right? And so it's just one of those nights. And that's probably the way many of us feel through those uh, miserable little stretches. However, in this, we have Elijah who knows God wants to do something. And so what does he do? He begins to pray. And yet when he prays, nothing happens. He heard the sound of an abundance of rain. By faith, he knows that God wants to do something. However, in the natural realm, there is no indication that God is responding at any level. What does this demand? Perseverance. It demands endurance. It demands a manly quality to actually continue in the face of a seeming denial, a seeming no, to say, I know what I heard. I know what God wants to do. I don't care what the natural realm says. I don't care that there are no clouds in the sky and there, haven't been a cloud in the, there hasn't been a cloud in the sky for three and a half years. That doesn't make any difference to me. I know that I know that I know what God wants to do. So what does he do? He prays again. And he keeps sending his servant out to check to see if a cloud is forming, if the storm is coming, if the rains are on their way. No, 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 no. So that's why then it came to pass the seventh time. Now, 
That's symbolic to the Hebrew mind of completion, seven being a number of completion. And I wish I could tell you that if you prayed seven times, this will happen every time. There's nothing magical about the number seven. It's symbolic of a number of completion. And sometimes that becomes 7D times seven. And sometimes it becomes 490 times 490 times that we must exert that quality of endurance over and over and over again until we see the cloud form. There is a cloud, says the servant, as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said. Now, what's funny, I, I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, how ridiculous it is that Elijah would stop praying when he sees just this teeny little cloud. But he knew what he was looking for. He needed the signal that God had answered. It takes as much faith to stop praying in this one as it did to keep praying before that. And then he says, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. The rain that's going to come is going to be so extreme. Uh, Master, there's only a cloud the size of a man's fist. Yep. Watch what God's going to do. And so this is going to be referenced in James here. It says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. So we have this illustration of this effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. So, and it, we, we hear that it avails much, but what we also see in the, in the story in 1 Kings is we're going to see that he will not relent, and he will keep going even when it gets difficult. Putting God's word to the test. In in my life and in my marriage, if you were to ask us, did we believe that persistent prayer mattered? Sure. You see, there's a lot of things we can know in our minds and we can esteem in our minds, but that doesn't mean we do them. I don't know if you've ever felt that uh, disconnect in your life too, where you have like this fact that we need to be sharing the gospel, then you never do. Or we need to be reaching out to the poor, but then we don't. It's like, theologically, we're correct. Why is there a disconnect, and why are we okay with that? I don't know if you've ever had those moments, uh, but it's, it is disturbing to me, and I see the, the propensity of us doing that in the American church maybe more than any other church in history. For some reason, it's like, you think that you're alive, but you're dead. I think that's a <clears throat> something said to one of the churches in Revelations. In other words, that we have this idea that, oh, we're doing great because we know that that's what God wants us to do, but we're not doing it. Prayer is one of those interesting dimensions of our life where we oftentimes know what we should be doing, and we know that God changes the world and he changes history through prayer, but we don't have time for it. Isn't that an odd statement? It's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. So let's go back on that, Eric. Let's, let's review that. You just said that it changes history and it changes the course of nations and it's the most important thing, most important activity that a Christian can be doing, but you don't have time for it? What, what are you doing with your life? Well, other things that are very important. But I thought you said that this is more important. Well, I did, but, but what? Uh, I'm really struggling to come up with a good answer for that one. You see, if it really is that important, then we should change everything in our life and build our life around it. And that's just good old-fashioned logic so Leslie and I are going through this at the time that we have uh, a newborn. So we have Hudson. Uh, and for those of you that have had a newborn, you know that that's not the easiest time to come to those conclusions that you need to change your life and build it around prayer. 
And so we also have uh, two book deadlines, and we have Harper, who we just discovered, of course, in this time, what God's doing, he's stirring us, that uh, she's going to be coming home. And so in this exact same time, we have this notion, I would say the Spirit of God had this notion, but that we wanted to prove God's word true. So God, what if we built our life around prayer instead of trying to fit you in or fit prayer into our already busy life? Because our life was all ministry. The whole thing was us pouring out and sharing, but prayer, even though we had it, was fit in around the edges. And so if we have time for it, then of course we pray because it's so important to pray. And so we took this season and we decided that, okay, we're gonna build our life around prayer. And so the way I'm putting it is putting God's word to the test. God, you say that if the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, well then we want to see something avail much in our life. We wanna do something with this time that we have on earth in these bodies that actually avails much. I'm tired of not availing much. So what needs to happen, God? Here I am. Here's my schedule. Here's my time. Here's my energy. Now, it's funny because I know some of you are even feeling it as I'm talking. It sounds noble to pray, but it also sounds somewhat depressing. Bless you. It sounds sort of depressing. Leslie used to say it sounds like uh, the difference between, you know, if you could just... uh, To be able to live for yourself and to do what you would decide sounds like a nice uh, vacation to Hawaii to lay on the beach or in that hammock I was talking about earlier. But to pray uh, and to to take the time you would have been watching a movie, that you would have been doing something for yourself and now instead you're praying, sounds like a, a season of solitary confinement in a prison cell, which of course we know in Christian history is very noble and good, but it is not attractive to the soul. It is not attractive that we want that. We esteem it when someone goes through it with joy, but we're not gonna purposely choose to go to the prison camp and to do the labor at the prison camp, which by the way is not altogether different than what prayer sometimes feels like. Prayer is hard labor. It is difficult and it is not something that our natural man is attracted to. So though we can esteem it in our spiritual man, there is a need to quiet the natural man and to bring him into subjection to a higher, more noble purpose, prayer. So Leslie and I started praying every day. We averaged for, I mean, it was over a year, over three hours a day of prayer in this time. So we have Hudson as, you know, he's cresting somewhere around two years old. We have Harper that's coming home. We have these two book deadlines and we have prayer. It was about all we did. We had to cut out almost every single thing in our life to be able to focus on it like this. And here's what I can say. If you were to say, so Eric, what did you find? I would say in this test, I found that when I put emphasis on prayer instead of in actuality and in practicality, instead of in theory, my life was changed. The depth of understanding I had in scripture exploded the depth of intimacy I shared with the Most High God in this time mushroomed and supernatural things began to happen. For instance, that's when we found out about Harper. We were in the midst of this time and the Harper adoption is one of the most extraordinary tales in our life, right? The two books that were written in that time, I want to say one of them was Bravehearted Gospel 
And the other one was, there, it could have been Wrestling Prayer. Actually, it could have been Wrestling Prayer that was written. At the, they both could have been written. I don't remember. And I think the other one might have been Set Apart Femininity. These are like powerhouse books that came out, impacted. Like Set Apart Femininity, which was written in that time, almost won the Gold Medallion Award for Book of the Year uh, in all the Christian world. And so these were like heavy-duty impact points that were taking place in the midst of this. But here's the kicker. Ellerslie came out of that. So in other words, out of this time of prayer, I, I had been praying for 17 years, if you remember the story, for Ellerslie and for this to happen. And it wasn't until we started building our life around prayer that these things began to happen. However, here's what I can say. This whole message is called endurance. When you begin to press forward in the kingdom of heaven, Remember that illustration I gave? It was a few weeks ago. I was saying that football, to me, is just a great illustration of the kingdom of heaven, where you have 11 players on one side, and you have this ball, and you have an end zone down there. And we're like, okay, guys, we need to get this ball into that end zone. So we oftentimes know the objective. All right, we need to get glory for our king. He has a design for this team and is to move in this direction and reveal his nature to the world, that the manifold wisdom of God would be seen. And we're like, and we stick our hands in the middle, go! And we're all excited for this adventure. But we get out on there, and we're ready to move. The, and we have this idea that it's just going to be like, okay, I hand the ball to this guy, and he just runs. It's like, wow, that was easy. Instead, there are 11 mean dudes that line up on the other side. And they have that fa uh, black face paint on. They're, like, they're missing teeth. And they, you know, they just like, and they smell. They, they smell like sulfur, okay? There's just something on the other side that is very, very dark and hideous. And it has a sole agenda to thwart your forward progress. And that shocks many of us. We actually don't understand why they're there. It's like, wait a minute, God. I thought you wanted us to get the ball in the end zone. Why, why do we have these big dudes on the other side? In fact, they're bigger than you are. In fact, they're about quadruple the size you are. There's, in fact, if you look at the odds, now if you see it the way it actually is, you're like a whole bunch of sheep and there are a whole bunch of wolves, bears, and lions on the other side. They're licking their chops. And you somehow need to get, with your little band of sheepness, that pigskin into that end zone. Good luck. You see, most of us don't understand how the spiritual elements work. And so we're over here with our ball, and we're thinking all these noble thoughts about an end zone and about the glory of God, but we don't recognize that there's a real practical engagement, that we need something supernatural to be able to get this there. And God says, pray. I want you to pray. Now what happens is we start, in our first play, we lose three yards, which is shocking to us because we're on the winning team, right? We're on the victorious side, and yet we just lost three yards? The next play, maybe we gain one. It's third and uh, 12. Okay, we're in a bad situation because somehow we have to keep moving the ball. And so unless we actually recognize that this is going to be hard, that it is going to be hard fought, and what is called upon is a quality that we don't natively have, endurance. You see, there needs to be something in the darkest moments when it's fourth and 52, that it's impossible against these odds to make it that we doggedly hold on to Jesus Christ and we do not let go until we see that first down gained or that touchdown gained. 
We know he's stronger than this enemy, and we will hold doggedly to that point until we see it proven in the natural realm. So availing much, what does it look like? It looks as a thousand, a million different faces. We live in a generation where the church is losing ground. If we were to look at it statistically, I don't remember what the number is, but it's, oh, I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna pick a, a number even though it's not accurate. There's something like 40 million Christians, okay? I don't know if that's evangelical Christian, I don't know if that's a mix of, of different types. And in a country of, oh, three to 400 million, right? And so that sounds impressive maybe at first or bigger than you actually thought. Well, most of those aren't very strong, okay? The fact that they're willing to even acknowledge that they're a Christian, praise God. But uh, I think even in this, I don't know, it was Barna, I don't remember how I studied, I shouldn't even go, be going off on statistics because they're going to be incorrect. But here's, here's the point that I want to make. is isn't the actual numbers. It's the fact that every year that number's dwindling. And that means that if Christians, if every one of us in this room were to function as a Christian, what should we be doing? Bearing fruit. We should be winning others to Jesus Christ. I mean, like at least one a year, right? So technically, if the church is at the most basic level healthy, we should be increasing substantially every year. Instead, we're shrinking. What is happening in the church when we are showing such a powerlessness to grow? That means with every person that is coming into the kingdom, we're losing someone. I mean, that, that's not a healthy trend. So what does availing much look like? It changes the trends. I think we see something change in our life. I don't know what you're used to in your life, but if you begin to endure and to persevere instead of letting go of the sword, because if we were to say, are there certain points of prayer that you knew you should be praying for, that you knew God wanted you to pray for and push for, but you stopped praying for? I say without even discussion on the point, we should pick those back up. I think we should go right back to the last point we knew we should be standing for and we should stand for it again. This is of extreme importance. All we know is that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And there's nothing different about Elijah and us. In fact, if anything, we have better promises. We have a better covenant. We have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We have the victory of the shed blood of Jesus. As far as I'm concerned, we should be better positioned than Elijah. So grabbing a hold of the banister and not letting go. So as the story goes in my life, and I've used this many times, oftentimes when talking with men, there was a season or a point in my life where I esteemed things with my mind but didn't know how to live them with my life and my body. And so it's a very frustrating season, if any of you have gone through it, where you know how you ought to live and you actually want to live that way, but as Paul says in Romans 7, you have nothing in you that is able to produce it. There's no power to draw from. And I, I was so frustrated. I believed the word of God, and I believed that God wanted to do this in me. I read the New Testament. I'm like, okay, God, that's what I expect. But I didn't have the tools. It's sort of like staring at a pile of lumber and having this, the, the scriptures say something like, so I intend you to build a house. Okay. And so, but without tools, it's really hard. You set some 
pieces of plywood next to each other, lean a two-by-four against it, and then a oh, gust of wind comes over and knocks it down. It's like, how come I can't get this to stand? Well, if you don't know what a hammer and nails are, if you don't know what a saw is, if you don't know what these tools are to actually construct as a wise master builder, then you are vulnerable. If you don't know how to lay a strong foundation and affix these beams and these support uh, columns to it, then as a result, you will not be strong in trial. So here's, that's me in a nutshell. Okay, I was not discipled. No one ever trained me in how to do this. So there were certain tests in my life that I could not pass, and it really frustrated me. I'd call it the cyclical pattern of defeat. Where, and I'm going to use the illustration of being upstairs in a house, because that's actually what it was, and downstairs there was something in the middle of the night that was calling me. And it was something that I didn't want to participate in, but I didn't have the ability or the power to say no to it, for whatever reason. Okay? I knew scripturally that I should, but I didn't know what it was. So there I am, in the middle of the night, once again, walking towards the downstairs. I don't even want to. I don't want to go down there. And then you're like, well, then don't. I know, but I don't know how not to. Every time in my life I go down those stairs. I've never actually seen an overcoming power be able to overwhelm the life of Eric and change the pattern. So there I am, like the idiot zombie, walking towards the downstairs, and I get to the very top of the stairs. I don't want to go down there, but I don't know how to not go down there. So what a weird statement that is, isn't it? So I grab a hold of the banister. Both hands. I just can't do both hands right now. Grab with both hands, and I say to God, God, I'm not going to let go of this banister until I get whatever you have to supply for me to say no to this. I know you have it. I just don't know what it is. I don't know how it works, but I know you have it. It has to be what Jacob felt. He doesn't know how this whole system works. He doesn't really know how God imparts something to him. He's been grabbing heels Grab, you know, trading out red stew and wearing goat skin to try and get it, conning Laban. He's been doing everything he can, but he still is miserable. God, I know you have it. I will not let go of this banister until I get it. And I stood there for about an hour, grabbing, squeezing, pleading with God. And get this, I went back to bed that night. I didn't know to call it grace. I didn't understand how it all worked, except for I had stumbled into something, or you could say God led me into something, which was to recognize that I must hold on until. And when I learned that simple principle of holding on until, it actually unlocked a whole cavern of understanding in my life of how grace is gained. You have everything you need, but you must hold on until you receive it. You have a task that is greater than you. To get this ball into that end zone is not something that you in and of yourself can do. You are going to face trial. You are going to face the growling and the sulfurous smells of the enemy on the other side of the line. But you must continue even when it gets difficult and even when the quarterback gets sacked and it looks like all is lost and it's fourth and 52 that you hold on to your God and recognize that he has not called you to defeat, but he has called you to victory. So in that hour, you rise up and you freshly express your faith in your God. Whatever you're going through today, I want us all to do that. 
It's a manly quality. To grab a hold of God and say, I will not let go. I will hold on until I see this fully manifest in my life. So grabbing a hold of the banister is crossed out. Banister is crossed out and it says Savior. So grabbing a hold of the Savior and not letting go. It's Christianity. That is what we need today. And if we're going to see that ball get into that end zone, if we're going to see the glory of God manifest in this generation, we need this now. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Isn't that a great statement? Now, finally, we'll finish with this. So this is Oswald Chambers, and I was in a, a very critical moment in my life where I felt like God was asking me to risk Risk everything. It was actually all my money that I had when I was in missionary school. And to give it to someone else. In fact, it was even to take on, it's complicated, but just trust me when I say it was the biggest risk, the biggest step of obedience I'd ever taken in my life. And so I was praying that morning, probably on my knees in this little quiet room at the missionary base. It was early, early in the morning. And God, I, I said, God, I need you to just give me a confirmation that this is what I'm supposed to do because this is like crazy, 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 crazy. And so I read Oswald Chambers. Now it's interesting, if you read Oswald Chambers December 1st, this is the final lines, but they've rewritten it. They have a modernized version of it, which bothers me. So I rewrote it the way I've memorized it because I memorized it years ago. It still bothers me. It's like, who is getting their grubby paws on Oswald Chambers thinking they can write better than he does? It just bothers me. He's so eloquent and they always are messing it up. So listen to this. When we deliberately choose to obey him, then he will tax the remotest star and the last grain of sand to assist us with all his almighty power. This story is going to lead to one of the most challenging stretches of my life at that point in time, and I saw God so mightily demonstrate his power to me in and through it. He taxed the, last, or he taxed the remotest star and the last grain of sand to assist me with all his almighty power. I am a living testimony that when you trust God, he is faithful and true. I can say that all throughout my life. Has my life been easy? No. Have I experienced greater trials than most people because of what the world would say is stupidity? <laughs> but is obedience saying, God, I'm willing to do that? Yes, there have been great trials, great fire. But I have seen my faith rewarded with great faithfulness. And that is a treasure that cannot be robbed from me. It is something I have personally witnessed. When we hold on and do not let go, we will see the grace of God expressed. Father, I just ask that you would demonstrate your power, your strength, your might, your majesty in and through us, in and through our lives. Lord, I thank you for each one that is present here, each one that will hear these words, whether it's being streamed right now or whether it's via podcast later. Lord, I ask that you would encourage and build up and freshly move us to hold on and to not let go, to return to the prayer closet that we may have abandoned, to return to first things in our life. Lord Jesus, just having a mind full of good theology is not the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. Lord, I pray that our lives would be full of vigor, of strength, of persevering power. Lord, that we would 
continue in the faith, that we would exercise and bring to action the things that we know to do. Lord, we love you and we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.